Hi, you're about to listen to episode 14 of the podcast. This is the second of a multi-part series on climate change, the president's withdrawal of the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement, and the politics and rhetoric that surround it. This week, what are we seeing today? Who are the leading voices on climate action in the public, private, and religious spheres? In this episode, we talk about Gaia from Captain Planet, Carl Sagan, a couple of popes, and Elon Musk. This is Robot F. Kennedy. Today, um, I want to talk about where we're at right now. What is happening in our world right now that is attributed to climate change or attributable to climate change? Mm -hmm. Um, How is it already upending political discourse in the United States and around the world? Um, And and sometimes um, it's very clear, right? So to give two specific examples, um, one is the, the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef is an ongoing phenomenon. It's very clearly linked to ocean acidification. And um, most people uh, point to climate change for that. There are other things like the Syrian civil war that a lot of climate scientists and political scientists believe started because of a mega drought as a result of climate change between 2009 and 2011. Um, Governor O'Malley was one of the first politicians to attribute the Syrian civil war to climate change. Exactly. He was laughed at for that. It's okay. That makes me sad. Martin, if you're listening, Governor O'Malley, we love you, we respect you, and we are amenable to your uh, everything is connected way of viewing the world. So I want to talk a little bit about the kind of obvious and non-obvious ways our world is being influenced by climate change already, and uh, kind of talk about what can be done Mm -hmm. um, as a country, the United States, we are both citizens of, and as as a planet. Um, But I want to start off a little personally. I want you to give me like a little um, idea of like... In terms of environmentalism, where are you coming from? What are your what are your associations with it? What are your memories about it? Why is why is the planet important to you? Other than let's take for granted that you live here and need to live here because there's nowhere else to live. You know, it it comes from three places for me, and they, and they're all going to sound kind of silly, but looking back, they certainly shaped my environmental views. The first is every morning at seven a.m. Captain Planet was on TV. Okay. And I loved that show. But without thinking about, I mean, without realizing it, that show did influence my views. Two is being a Boy Scout. And, you know, Boy Scouts have this kind of, you know, protecting nature idea and, uh, you know, leave it better than you found it kind of thing. And three is... In high school, I took AP Environmental Science. You took the same class. Mm -hmm. You were a year ahead of me. And that really opened my eyes. Um, I think at the beginning of the year, the teacher passed out like a survey of like all of these different environmental problems. And it was like, which ones, you you know, rate them based on their seriousness, you know. And then at the end of the year, he passes around the same survey. At least he did my year. And it was startling how just the course of the year and learning about all these threats that were facing humanity or not even humanity, but you know, the environment suddenly it was like so many more threats became, you know, they went up on my scale that it was difficult to complete the assignment because everything is, is dangerous. So anyway, so those three things kind of shaped where I am. I don't, I don't particularly like go out in nature very much. I don't, you know, I live in LA where the, the weather is pretty uh, temperate. You know, we don't have snowstorms or hurricanes. 
We have a drought. We had one until last year. And we'll probably have another one very soon. But I'm pretty insulated from some of the worst effects of climate change, you know, or, or environmental harm in general. But I feel like I understood it from an intellectual standpoint. And that's kind of how I got to where I am today. What about you? Um, similar things. I think, um, I think I, as a matter of fact, what was the, was it, what was the like earth mother woman in Plan- Captain Planet? Was it Gaia? I don't was remember like, that. She was like, wore like a purple dress. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, I think she was black and she would like appear. I don't know if she was like Captain Planet's like patroness or like a, a god or something. I, I don't know. I uh-huh. don't remember, but I remember, um, I think, uh, I became sexually activated. I was going to say, it's not based on how I you was, described I was her. very into her. I was like curiously into her. Um, <laughs> and that made me an environmentalist. Kidding. I'm not kidding about being attracted to her a cartoon <laughs> as a child, but I uh, am kidding about that's why I became an environmentalist. Um, for me, it actually stems a lot from, uh, I had a very similar experience in AP environmental science, but the biggest impact um on me is my love of all things space and NASA and aeronautical. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, I wanted to be an astronaut my whole childhood until I found out that my bad eyes precluded me from being an astronaut. Oh, um, really? Yeah, it's a really like sad story. Um, how, do you don't you don't know the story? No. We do you have? Was it like Little Miss Sunshine? So my my uncle um, my uncle uh, was a naval aviator and um, was friends with a lot of astronauts and wanted and I was so into science and space and and I wanted to be an astronaut that when I was a kid he would really encourage me. Um, like for example, do you remember when John Glenn, as an older old man, yeah, like ninety six, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, as a Christmas present, got me um, a signed photograph of that entire flight crew including john glenn and a mission patch whoa which was awesome and uh, so i have john glenn's signature on the picture and um sorry i just distracted nick by <laughs> showing him a picture of gaia from captain planet yeah and you totally ruined your train yeah. spot i so you have a signed super picture. aroused <laughs> you're blushing right now uh, i'm blushing right now i'm being taken back um who was voiced by Whoopi Goldberg, by the way. Was it really? <laughs> yeah. Was she really? Yeah. Oh, that explains my Whoopi Goldberg <laughs> thing. Um, so, so. Okay, NASA. <laughs> so, uh, NASA. I was obsessed with it. And long story short, um, I think I was about 13 or 14. I have really bad eyes. I have really bad eyes. So, my. Sorry, this is a super personal anecdote, but um, bad eyes do not run in my family. And my eyes are terrible. And my eyes are terrible because I read so much as a kid because I was mostly reading science books and astronaut things, related things, because I wanted to be an astronaut. And so for another Christmas present from my uncle, he gave me, um, this is the application to be an astronaut, like for astronaut school. Oh, no. And it's like 100 pages long. And it was not with the serious intent that at the age of 13 or 14 I would do it, but it was like more like, hey, you can see what it's like, and this is a real thing from the world. Like, this is a real artifact from the world of NASA and Johnson Space Center and all that stuff, right? And so I, like a total dweeb, uh, put my glasses on and, like, went to town. I think all of Christmas break, I was filling out this astronaut form, mm-hmm. like, and was going to keep it sure. in a box until I came of age, right? And I got to the medical evaluation section that um, said that you need 2020, uncorrected 2020 vision, and 
I then forced my mom to make an appointment with the optometrist oh, no. Oh, no. Um, to check my eyes again, who he then informed me that like, yeah, you, sorry, you can't, like you have really bad eyes. And it's also like an eye strain thing. It's not a genetic thing. So you've read too much or you read in the dark or whatever. So like, sorry, buddy. And I wanted to die inside. Um, this is a super long tangent. Uh, I wanted to be an astronaut. Some other day I'll tell you about when I accidentally printed a 500 page <laughs> Mars Rover uh, PDF at the, in, this, in the computer lab <laughs> in the high school I think library. I um, and, and it was like two minutes till the end of lunch break. So everybody Ooh. went to print their, reports yeah. and the one printer was jammed printing like <laughs> statistical data from like the sojourner <laughs> probe anyway um so rewind rewind uh the have you heard of the overview effect yes um but tell our listeners about so it. the overview effect is something this. it's a psychological effect that um has been studied in the 12 men that uh, that were part of the Apollo program um, and the much larger group of men and women that have been astronauts in the International Space Station, in the uh, shuttle missions. Um, but twelve was, of the men who were in the Apollo group. Many more than that have been. I'm sorry, twelve men walked on the moon. Right. Uh, more than that were part of Apollo. You're absolutely right. I apologize for misspeaking. Um, but the point is that this is a psychologically studied effect where these astronauts when presented with this new vantage point where for the first time an individual of the homo of the of the species homo sapiens could see the entire world in their field of vision from end to end the whole world and all of them reported extreme emotional like extremely uh, m- moved and humbled emotional phenomena um, and m- almost all of them kind of came back with a lasting sense of altruism and love of the the planet and um, it's kind of seemed the way it's described it almost seems like a dissolution of the ego by way of psychedelic yeah. drug experiments but it was done, it was basically these astronauts but um, it's also a dissolution like of borders a lot of them talk about like you don't see borders you just see you know, kind of, you can imagine people waking up as the sun gets to where they are, or yeah. you can see them, you know, getting ready for bed because the lights come on where they are. And it really is like a, you understand kind of the brotherhood of humanity yeah. in a way that we here on the earth can't really understand. There's also that great Carl Sagan quote, which I know some of by heart, but I don't know it all, so I'm going to flub it. But it's the, it's the, he, he describes it as the pale blue dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, Every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. It's really moving stuff, um, especially for 
science nerds. And so I would say my my deep love of science, of space, of um, of aeronautics, of space exploration, um, of science fiction, of Carl Sagan specifically, and to a strong extent but lesser extent, individuals like Buckminster Fuller and other role models of mine. That's kind of how I got into it. Where that's so interesting. I was kind of like indoctrinated into this global mindset at a very young age by way of the things that I read and the things that I because none of those people are environmentalists not they're not known as environmentalists no right and like the way Rachel Carson or Jane Goodall are known yeah exactly and so it's interesting that it was this love of science that you also kind of backed your way into environmentalism because it was like oh well yeah if you love science then of course you're going to love also, this this branch of science over yeah. here, you know. So this this gets to um, I'm going to put this in the show notes, but there's a, I, I said I want to talk about Elon Musk. Elon Musk is a crazy dude, and uh, love him. And he has this great video. It's about 12 minutes long, and I'll I'll put it in the show notes. I'll send it to you, Ed. And in it, he in his just dweeby, he's something that I think a lot of people forget. Have you ever watched Elon Musk speak? No. He's um, for as successful and visionary and clearly brilliant as he is. He's not as smooth of a speaker as like, let's say Steve Jobs was, or even some recordings of Thomas Edison, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's that level of person, but he's kind of got this very like halting, awkward, insecure way of talking. It's almost like the bandwidth isn't high enough out of his brain to his mouth. And so he's constantly Mm. kind of tripping on himself, but he's got this 12 minute video that where he was giving a lecture or some sort of keynote in France, actually, this is well before the mm-hmm. events of the last few weeks with the Paris climate agreement and Trump taking us out of them. And in it, he, in his very musky way, I love him, um, made just the most succinct and focused, almost like, how could you disagree with that argument yeah. for why we need to take action on climate change? And, First of all, he says, look, let's look at the stakes, right? He says, um, we've designed civilization to be maximally uh, sensitive to or exposed to climate change. And by that, he means we built our cities on coasts, right? right? The majority of the world's population lives on a coast. And so that's a real big kind of structural flaw to the way that we've uh, built civilization. Second of all, he says that... um, the, if you look at the possible downside, uh, if we wait to make the transition, we could see, quote, more displacement and destruction than all of the wars in history combined. That's a pretty low downside. Like, that's a pretty bad downside mm-hmm. to the formula. So he was looking at um, – he was describing kind of the fossil fuel industry, and he was saying, like, let's just break down the math. Let's say you're – Arguing from the point of view of a fossil fuel industry, you're mm-hmm. you're uh, an executive, an oil company, or a fracking company, or a natural gas company, and all you're doing is you're extracting fossilized carbon from long dead living creatures, mostly algae, phytoplankton, and cyanobacteria from the ocean, mm-hmm. but also dinosaur bones and trees and all kinds of other stuff, peat bogs, etc. But you are extracting a finite resource. So even if there were no regulations and even if there were no downsides at all, maybe even uh, climate change doesn't occur, 
you're building your entire industry on a finite resource that will, by definition, eventually expire and there will no longer be shale oil or 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 petroleum or natural gas to extract from the earth on a long enough timeline. Mm-hmm. And then right next to that, you've got the naturally occurring nuclear fission going on in the sun that will be going on for the next five billion right. years. And when you compare those, you're saying all these, he's saying, I think he's just underscoring the absurdity that these industries are saying, even if you didn't have a human cost to climate change, even if you, uh, there were no barriers, no regulations, no taxes whatsoever uh, against fossil fuels, you're arguing from the vantage point of a finite and limited resource compared to an infinite and renewable resource. Why would you kind of build your... Uh, why would you build your future on that? It makes no mathematical sense. But it, oh, you're leaving the pun wide open for me, Good. but it does make dollars and cents because the oil companies are stand to make money now if there is global demand for oil. That's a good point. And if the United States tomorrow was like, you know what, that's it, we're done. No more oil, foreign or domestic. You know, it, it makes no difference. We're We're getting out of the oil game. Then suddenly demand plunges, the price of oil plunges, and that's not good for business, not only for the oil companies, but for all the secondary and tertiary companies. I'm just saying- I'm glad you brought that up. That's a counterpoint to, yes, I mean, I agree with Elon Musk on this 100%. Like, yeah, the sun is there every day, uh, and it will be for the next 5 billion years, but Exxon's stock prices are there right now. But you segued perfectly into another section of his keynote. Um, I really oh, encourage great. you to watch it. And it basically goes to that the like capitalism and economies are very efficient. They're very efficient ways of of organizing resources and mm-hmm. allocating them around the world. The problem though is that um, it is when you have hidden costs in the system mm-hmm. that are not exposed to either the supplier or the purchaser of a good. The analogy he drew that I thought was beautiful was he goes, let's talk about garbage. So this is analogous to not paying for garbage collection. Um, and it's, it's not as though we, sh- we should say, in the case of garbage, have a garbage-free society. It's very difficult to have a garbage-free society. But it's just important that people pay for the garbage collection. So we need to go from having an untaxed negative externality, which is effectively a hidden carbon subsidy of enormous size, uh, $5.3 trillion a year, according to the IMF, every year. Um, we need to move away from this uh, and, 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 and have a carbon tax. Prevention is always cheaper than cleanup. So it's diff- what you're talking about is not an exact... I mean, a, a barrel of oil has a value, on, and at any given moment has a, has a value, based on what someone is willing to pay for it, right? Yeah. But the idea of cleanup does not have a value, either fixed or floating, because it it's not a concrete process. Does that make sense? I don't even know if... Well, no, like we have the science and the tools to make it a concrete process, right? It's It's not visual, literal, and physical. Like literally carbon dioxide is matter that is in a gaseous state, right? So it's fundamentally different from like 
I don't know what temperature you'd have to be at to have like a solid block of carbon dioxide, right. probably a very low cold temperature to have a block right. of what is it? I guess dry ice is carbon dioxide ice, right? Really? Isn't it? I don't know. Regardless. If Bixby is our cold. resident lawyer, Bixby. who is our resident scientist? Uh, <laughs> Werner. That's a good one. I'm just, right. I'm well, just I'm, imagining I'm, like the artificially intelligent trapped soul of the oh, Nazi bastard Werner von, <laughs> von Braun. Wow. Operation Paperclip, guys, we brought a lot of Nazi scientists over and they got us to the moon. Including some Very that, conflicted uh, about it. developed climate science. Yeah. In the 50s. Absolutely. So uh, I want to talk. So, okay, Pope Francis. This I'm going to reference something that he he wrote an encyclical called Laudato Si. And um, it, it was quoted widely as the climate change papal encyclical. I'm, I'm a big fan. Uh, as a lapsed Catholic, I am a big, big fan of, um, of Pope Francis. And something that I find baffling, and this goes back to our party identification line of dialogue in our last episode, I'm baffled by a phenomena, a phenomenon that I witness. But if anything, it speaks perfectly to the, uh, what do we call it? It speaks perfectly to the phenomenon of motivated ignorance we were just talking Mm -hmm. about. Let's talk about some equivocation. (laughs) I know a lot of American Republican Catholics who believe that abortion is murder because a 71-year-old celibate Italian pope in 1968 said that it was murder. But in 2015, a 79-year-old Argentinian pope said that climate change is real, that it is the responsibility of not only every Catholic, but every human on earth to be stewards and custodians of our environment, Mm -hmm. to, uh, to take care of the disproportionately affected poor uh, basically that the poor around the world are disproportionately affected by climate change and that it is the uh, moral responsibility of wealthier people, especially Catholics, to care for them and make sure that their livelihood and their environment um, okay. is intact. He even went so far as to uh, coin a term, well, not coin a term, but y- use a term, ecological debt um, that we are uh, accruing mm. in our basically our capitalist business practices. And when he wrote this, first of all, I'm bl- my mind is blown that any Pope wrote something that I actually agree, agree with. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, maybe I have something to connect with my dad about. Oh, wow. And so I gleefully kind of skipped to that conversation thinking, finally, we, we have something to bond about. And how could you possibly argue against this? Right. It's the f- Pope. And it immediately, it's an interesting choice of words. Well, go on. <laughs> from the point of view, from the point of view of an American uh, conservative Catholic. No, no, um, I understand. I just the F word Pope is a funny. Oh, phrase. oh, that part. Um, and the well, what you have to understand, Nick, is that this guy is a uh, is a uh, what's what's it called in the South American theolo- uh, lib- Lib- this guy's a liberation theology, theology Jesuit liberal guy he's got an axe to grind he's got an agenda he's he's like a he's basically a socialist and and I don't okay, know so- I don't know why <laughs> I don't know why the Pope it's unfortunate that the Pope it's unfortunate that the Pope has to make everything political and I think this is really a, a sad a sad day. Uh, that's not. I'm, I'm blending a few conversations I've had with American conservative Catholics 
So I don't want to put all those words in my dad's mouth, uh-huh. but some of those words came it's out of my It's funny that dad's your dad went to liberation theology yeah. Jesuit schools for eight years, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm blown away, but if anything, this is so, this is a this, great example of... That's interesting and unfortunate, because I was wondering how your Republican family members feel about climate change, because I can tell you about the conversation I had with my dad, where I was like, Dad, you're, you know, my dad studied computer science in college, and so I kind of bend that in the argument, like, Dad, you studied science in college, and the evidence is there. Why aren't you more alarmed by this? And his response... It's interesting, let me pause for a second, that none of the Republicans I talk to deny that climate change is real. Oh, I I have people in my life that oh, interesting. outright deny that climate change is even happening. So, but my dad... They say if it's happening, it's not... If it's happening, human beings have nothing to do with it, and it might oh. not be happening at all. I've had people quote to me that, like, what, like, stuff that's, like, widely debunked internet conspiracy theory stuff. Like, well, if... It, if you look at the data, like give them smart Jupiter, voice. Give them smart voice. Well, if you look at data, <laughs> I don't know what's the smart voice sound like. Um, I guess my own voice. Ha ha. <laughs> um, if you look at the data, Jupiter's warming. What's the deal with that? Oh, it's clearly out of our hands. Or mm, we have that data. Antarctica like added ice last year. How's that happening? If it's global warming, or like seems pretty cold in right. Washington D.C. this year. Right. That type of bullshit. Horrible. So my dad's answer is. It is happening, and when it's time to do something about it, we will. And I was like, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Like, as long as you keep it's believing that. It's also super, super rich. I want to point out something, though. Not point out something, but I want to. Your dad's an entrepreneur. Uh-huh. That's a very risky entrepreneurial kind of way of looking at it, actually. That makes total sense to me as being your dad's point of view. <laughs> right? Because it's like... I'm going to uh, I'm gonna play the game as the rules are set now. Mm-hmm. And when the game changes, I'm going to rely on human ingenuity to come up with a better solution when the time is right. Mm-hmm. Which also, logically, if you look at it, it's like a very, that's a very risky. And again, I want to go back to what I said earlier, that prevention is always cheaper than cleanup. In 100 years, oh, when, sure. when we get to, you know, in the last episode, I said that when they discovered... Greenhouse, you know, the effect of greenhouse gases, carbon was at 290 something parts per million. Now it's at 400 and something. And when it gets closer to 600, you know, that'll be catastrophic. Yeah. A hundred years from now, we'll be there, right? We'll be in, in the 600s if we do nothing. Yeah. They'll figure out a way to get all the carbon out of the atmosphere or to put it to do something. They'll, they could figure out a way. But that would be such a monumental and expensive task. And to me, the ingenuity that you're alluding to, why don't we just use that now? Yeah. Spend a fraction of the money, which I guess we're doing with the Paris Climate Accord, but the United States isn't a part of it. You're already, and I want, I'm, oh, I love you, but you're already also framing this in practical regards rather than ethical or moral regards. People who don't believe in climate change, the no amount of morality is going to win them over. And I, and you brought it up, so I'm going to kind of come really, back to something, it. Something you're doing is killing someone else. Somewhere else in the world. It's Nick, like, the, what's Nick, the movie where they're the arguments and you press the button and you get a million dollars, but you know someone dies, but you never have to see that person? Their argument for... Cameron Diaz is in that movie. Abortion. Their argument for abortion is one based on morality. And it has no effect on you and me. I'm, and what I'm saying a is little the, uncomfortable with your characterization of that, though. Because I think morality does play into it. Like, 
I'm very nervous about going down the abortion rabbit hole right now, but I will very briefly state the following. <laughs> that science, I defer to science. The, my general framework for how we should organize the world around us is that we know that we are alive on this planet right now and that we need to organize our society for, we, we should organize our society for our maximum happiness and productivity. And we do that by measuring and we do that by experimenting and we do that by looking at reality. Mm -hmm. I reject out of hand any religious kind of precepts in relation to the law mm -hmm. governing people. Like I don't, I don't buy the whole, like, because God, like uh, we have free speech because God said we have free speech or right. any of that. Shit, right. So it, it, from my standpoint, my feelings and my opinions about uh, specifically about uh, generally reproductive rights are that um, science cannot at this point place a specific date on the kind of beginning of an independent human life. Mm -hmm. um, there are viability dates that are already cited in the legal framework mm -hmm. that we use um, for when terminations can occur. But if science, if 97% of scientists tomorrow, some experiment was done and then peer reviewed and then double blind tested over and over again and was replicable, that 97% of scientists said actually life does begin at the moment of conception. Mm -hmm. I think I'll, I can't speak for anyone other than myself. But I would have some very uh, hard – that would be a very ethically and morally hard problem for me because right now I'm deferring to the science, which is ambiguous. And therefore, in a world where the science is, where the science is ambiguous, the morality for me comes to, well, I know that a grown woman that is carrying a, a, right. a fertilized <laughs> she is a human. embryo is a human. It, right. I can see that with my own eyes. The legal system treats her as a human. Right. And therefore, we should defer to her to make that choice. I, I agree with everything you just said. And it's also interesting that the first time we had this conversation when we were in high school, almost nothing has changed about your point of view. So you're consistent. What do you mean? We talked about this. I was very pro-life until college. Actually, well, maybe it was through college. college. No, maybe it was college that we talked about it then. And, I I, and I've, I've had a huge, like very deep soul searching kind of like coming to coming of age on this whole issue. So I think that in your argument, your um, looking to practicality. You're looking to science to answer this question. And what I'm, and I'm not disagreeing with that. And that's kind of how, what I assumed your beliefs were based on previous conversations we've had. But what I'm telling you is that the other side is like, no, 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 who cares about science? Who cares about the science of it? You know, the morality, and for them, it's the Bible, I guess. I, I don't really know because the Bible doesn't actually talk about when life begins. But no, their morality, their their moral structure leads them to believe that life begins at conception. Morality, that you want to keep framing it as like, well, the morality says we have to protect the planet. I mean, I agree with you, but because I already agreed with you. So you're pushing, you're pushing back on my, on my morality, morality versus practicality <laughs> yeah. thing. That's fair. I might have to sit with this a little longer. I think that we should win both arguments. I think that we should win it from a moral standpoint and we should win it from a practical standpoint. I want to quote the Pope. The, the current, current Pope? Pope, okay. Pope Francis. The Pope this says flatly... liberal theology. Laudato si. The Pope says flatly that a, quote, very solid scientific consensus indicates that we are presently witnessing a disturbing warming of the climate system. 
that, quote, things are now reaching a breaking point, end quote, and that greenhouse gases are, quote, released mainly as a result of human activity, now, end quote. So this can only mean that humanity is called to recognize the need for changes of lifestyle, production, and consumption. This is So this is like a hot topic here. And what I'm so confused about, I'm not confused, I'm quite cynically can accept it very readily, is how like Sean Hannity, who is a practicing Catholic and ostensibly a conservative Catholic, uh, how he can rail against Sandra Fluke for um, being loose with her birth control. I don't know if you remember that whole- Of course. That whole Fandango situation. Um, How he can, you know, in the same decade, basically publicly smear a woman for uh, exercising her right to purchase and use birth control pills and use as his framework a papal encyclical and then ignore this papal encyclical and everything that it says very clearly and undermine the message that it sends. Part of me, though, thinks that it's less about the environment and more about... You want me to answer your question about Sean Hannity? I would love you to answer my question about Sean Hannity because I hate him. Quote, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding. All right, Upton Sinclair. <laughs> we should rename the show <laughs> to that. You're absolutely right. Um, I think another thing that's weird here is this papal encyclical was framed in the media as like the environmental, the environmental encyclical, but it, had a, it talked a lot about the means of production, about consumerism, mm. about capitalism in general. And it was very critical of capitalism and the neoliberal world order. Oh, interesting. And I wonder how much of that is actually what the Hannity's of the world are freaking out about. Why? Because I think that's a, a deeper question of the... Um, that's a, a deeper question of the of motivated ignorance, right? Where you're oh, undermining yeah. the identity of like, I'm an American that believes about freedom and liberty right. and capitalism, right? The last thing I want to say about Pope Francis is that he has this recurring theme that I find beautifully stated. And it is that we forget that money, in one example, is a tool invented by mankind to achieve an end. And we have lost that perspective, and we so often arrange our lives around the idea that our lives are for money. Mm-hmm. And some of those same themes come up in his environmental papal encyclical, where we for- we forget the primacy of the environment. Right. right. Like, arguably, you could create an entire anthropocentric moral system where humans like the only reason we're here talking to each other is because we're humans and therefore things that align with the flourishing of humans are good and the things that destroy humans or degrade the flourishing of humans are bad and that i guess loosely is a lot of world ethics morality and politics in a nutshell but you could also extend it to the to the environment there are a lot of things that are not like there are a lot of things that are inventions of ours that we forget our inventions of ours. Money is a great example, but we could also say that, like the like, the environment is an order above humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Like humans are dependent on the environment. The environment is not dependent on right. humans. We are at the environment's mercy. Right. We, if we f- this up, we get no other chances. There's nowhere like the breathing really sucks on the moon. 
Um, Can I read you uh, another quote? This one from the Bible. Great. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I think about that in this debate because I think about these people, uh, and I'm one of them, who are caught up in getting more money. But it's like, yeah, if we ruin, if we blow up the earth in the pursuit of money, what will your money get you? Another version of this, this was crazy. So um, I'm going to be super nerdy for a second, but it's important and I'm excited to share this. Apple had, this is very pertinent to my line of work. Apple had an event, a big keynote on Monday. Mm -hmm. It's their Worldwide Developers Conference. I don't know if that penetrated your media world. It did. Oh, great. A couple of weeks ago now. There's this phenomenon that Apple does Uh where Apple is not shy at all about taking great ideas that are not patented. They're not like doing anything illegal. But they're basically saying like, oh, Eddie, you made this app or this whatever, and it's a great idea. And we're going to take that idea. We're going to make our own version of that idea. We're going to steal it from you per se, but we're going to basically replicate enough of its functionality that you probably have no business model anymore and we're gonna, like, <laughs> bake it into the operating system, right? And the, the terminology, sorry to take you into the, um, the inner labyrinth of uh, Mac and Apple software development culture over the last 30 or 40 years, um, there was a software program in the 90s called Watson, mm-hmm. I believe. And Watson was like before search engines. It was like this app that lived on the Mac and it let you, it would like pull in like movie times and a dictionary and like just a lot of little utilities mm-hmm. and it had a little search bar. And it was an app that you paid for. It was a third party developer and you would just, it was a very popular app. And then Apple, when they announced Mac OS X, I believe, in two, the year 2000, had this great app uh, is again pre Google this great app built into the operating system the first version of Mac OS 10 um, that where you could search for movie times and search for like currency conversions yeah. and uh, get dictionary definitions and it was called Sherlock remember the third party developers app was called Watson <laughs> and theirs was called Apple's was called Sherlock and they shipped it with the operating system and like the this third-party developer's business collapsed and they went out of business and it was very sad. Now, every time Apple's done that, it's called being Sherlocked. <laughs> and there was this meme or this clip or there's something that went viral in the, at least the Mac community this week where this guy was working on an augmented reality library, uh, which is a very hard problem. And he spent years on it as a startup he created. And Apple at Worldwide Developers Conference announced first-party augmented reality libraries where you can just point your phone at stuff and see oh. things interlaced uh-huh. in the world. And this this meme that went viral was this guy is very sad, actually. I mean, it's a good it's a good thing to be reminded of for all of us. Sure. It's a very long setup. But it was a shared little picture of the guy giving an interview, and he's very sad-looking, and it was like the written quote, and it was... I ignored my children for three years to build this company. Uh And then Apple Sherlocked me on Monday. And I like saved that to my hard drive and I want to like look at it every day. Jesus. Because, right? Sorry for the long meandering aside, but because we forget what we're doing all of this stuff for so often. Uh It is easy to forget. Our whole culture and our whole, it's not even our American culture, like our world culture is set up such that we forget. In, in a way, I don't want to sound conspiratorial, but because I don't think there's any like specific agency to it. Right. I think it's evolutionary, quite frankly. But like there is an incentive for us to forget that. There's a mm-hmm. productivity return mm-hmm. on us forgetting what we're doing all this for. But I think what's so lovely about that sad meme about the guy with the augmented reality library 
and the Pope's encyclical uh, Laudato Si. Um, and this whole conversation is that we need to remember that in order of dependencies, the earth exists whether we exist or not. We exist uh, whether whether money exists or not, and then so on and so forth mm-hmm. down the chain. And um, wow. and I think that's a lot of what's behind stuff like climate, you know, like stuff like climate change or the denial of climate science. That's our inability to kind of see things in that perspective. The overlook effect. Yeah. Wow. We didn't get to the Syrian civil war, but maybe we can do that next. That time. was a bit. That's this is big. I like this. I like where we just landed. This is Robot F. Kennedy. I'm Eddie Quintana. I'm Nick Daze. You can follow us on Twitter at Robot F. Kennedy. You can also find us on iTunes. Like us, subscribe, rate us, do all the things that you do to podcasts that you enjoy. But the best thing you can do is tell a friend. Just pick someone in your mind right now. Actually, I want you to do this right now. I want you to, unless you're driving, close your eyes. If you're driving, keep your eyes open. And I want you to think of somebody, uh, anything we've talked about today, right? Uh, We've talked about climate science. We've talked about outer space. We've talked about Captain Planet. We've talked about uh, the Pope. Um, Anyone you know, a friend, a colleague, a co-worker, a parent, whatever, that is interested in any of these topics, give them a call, shoot them an email, text them and say, hey, Check out this cool podcast. It's called Robot F. Kennedy. Now you can open your eyes. Except the drivers. Please, please, please. If you close your eyes while you were driving, you probably hit someone by now. Please tell them about the podcast. (laughs) I'm sure they and their insurance would love to hear about this. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Eddie. This is always fun. Cool. See you next time. time.